listening to the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest today is Dr. Kerry Chilemi. Kerry is a clinical psychologist based in Australia who has experience in the welfare, health, and private practice sectors. Kerry's approach is grounded in evidence-based therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, schema therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Her areas of expertise include anxiety, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and more. Kerry designed the functional legacy mindset approach to educate people on how different minds function, to embrace their strength, and the legacy of such minds in terms of the benefits to society. The theory of this approach is grounded by the therapeutic benefits of embracing the authentic self to promote a sense of purpose in which clients feel empowered to embrace their unique strengths and abilities to contribute to society in ways that feel authentic and meaningful to them. I came across Kerry's work via an article she wrote in Psychology Today on ADHD and the threat and soothing cycle of procrastination. I was particularly interested as she referenced Paul Gilbert's emotional regulation systems. So if you're unfamiliar with this, it's an evolutionary model proposing humans switch between three systems, threat, drive, and soothing, to manage their emotions. Kerry highlighted how those with ADHD tend to thrive in the drive system, but no specific things activate the threat system and the importance of finding helpful ways to move into the soothing system. One of these things that Kerry notes is self-compassion, which can help navigate the emotional regulation system without reactivating threat. Whilst I have explored and worked with both emotional regulation systems and self-compassion in both my clinical and personal work, I realized I had not considered it from the perspective of neurodiversity. Whilst I have explored and worked with both emotional regulation systems and self-compassion in both my clinical and personal work, I realized I hadn't considered it from the perspective of neurodiversity. I've also found myself reflecting on the fact that there can be so many crossovers in the arena of neurodivergence and often have heard others voicing confusion over the similarities between things like ADHD and addiction. I was keen to speak with someone with experience in this area, so I'm looking forward to exploring Kerry's thoughts around diagnosing, treating, and managing neurodivergence. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am here with Kerry Chilemi. Kerry, it's great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. How are things with you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Great. So tell me about your journey to psychology and your areas of interest within the field. Uh, So my specialty is uh, practicing with clients who are neurodiverse. So typically psychology focuses on thoughts, feelings and behaviours. And the approach that I like to take with clients is uh, a neurobiologically informed approach and also neuroaffirming. So uh, I mainly work with clients with ADHD and clients who are autistic 
And uh, we go well beyond thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So we talk about things like uh, neuroception, brain states, executive functioning, how to navigate the world, uh, a little uh, going well beyond the um, the uh, regular concepts that psychology typically focuses on. Mm. And what was it about those? So you mentioned ADHD and autism. Um, what was it? Was there anything in your upbringing, or was there anything that influenced that? What led you to to pursuing the line of work that you're in in those particular areas? Uh, part of it's a lived experience. So I have autistic traits myself. Uh, my daughter was diagnosed uh, as autistic, and uh, through that journey, um, I, I, I learned quite a lot about my own uh, self and. Um, I, I also have an interest in neuroscience, so I, I like to think about things a little bit more holistically and uh, think about how the environment influences people. Uh, I really like to focus on self-identity, so thinking about helping people feel empowered to understand how their minds work, uh, how they'd like to uh interact with the world in a way that uh, leverages on their strengths and minimizes any difficulties that they might have. Mm. You mentioned self-identity. Could you say a bit more about what that what that looks like you know for people who are maybe unsure around that? So a neuroaffirming approach um, tends to look at the um, the strengths of, of being neurodiverse. So there's so much beauty. Say, for example, with my clients with ADHD, um, they're incredibly intelligent and they're creative and they're authentic. Um, and it's really about uh, flow at the end of the day of um, how uh, in terms of interacting with the environment that uh, people can think about the types of environments that will play to their strengths and minimising uh, and accommodating for any difficulties that might come up. Yeah, so it sounds like kind of shifting some of the views that may be held and actually looking at some of the, like kind of looking at it from more of a perspective of, okay, what are the strengths here? And actually, you know, almost like your superpowers. I was speaking with someone on the podcast who had has ADHD and he was referring to them as like his superpowers. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a huge legacy in difference. So a lot of industries uh, benefit from having diverse thinkers. Uh, the the more known industries is like the tech industry and engineering. And uh, however, any industry, I, I, I know myself in working with clients that um, they often like that I have quite an intellectual approach and I'll, I'll really uh, go well beyond um uh, and make, making sure that they feel well informed about uh, how their mind works, uh, and people tend to appreciate that difference. Yeah, I, I know I really value psychoeducation and things like that. Certainly, you know, for myself, I've, I've always really valued that kind of understanding our tricky brains, um, how the world operates through the lenses of everyone in it. You know, everyone's kind of different, and and certainly talking about neurodiversity, I think. You know, it's really important, like the work you're doing. Um, it really stood out to me reading that article that you wrote on um, ADHD and the threat and soothing cycle of procrastination. Um, I guess for me, what stood out for that was I, integ- I, 
I integrate bits of compassion focused therapy in my work, you know, professionally and personally. And I really like that notion of emotional systems, you know, the threat, drive, and soothing. Um, and it really, you know, recognizing that as humans, we're so often in that threat or drive and so somewhere in between, and it's hard to access that soothing system. But I guess I hadn't really thought about it from, you know, coming from like an ADHD perspective, you know, and, and I was wondering how can, um, how can this kind of psychoeducation around emotional systems allow individuals with ADHD, autism to cultivate self-compassion? So, um, uh, so I'll read a little bit of the synopsis. So Paul Gilbert's evolutionary model proposes that human beings switch between the three systems to manage their emotions and that distress is caused by imbalance between the systems. I think uh, in order to move from the soothing to the drive system or the drive system to the soothing system, it's a lot easier to do so when you don't trigger the threat system. So say, for example, if a client with ADHD, if a person with ADHD is in a workplace and it's other people focused, it's, a, it's an immediate spot fire to put out in the moment, People with ADHD are quite clever at moving out of the threat system to the drive system. They'll systemize, mentor, innovate. They're quite good under pressured situations like that. However, uh, in the article, some of the other threat systems, uh, threat triggers that I talk about. So if it's an assignment that's unclear how to get started or uninteresting, if they haven't responded to a text message, so a week might have gone by and you haven't replied to the person, the expectation of yourself to complete a task in a timely manner. So you might have had an admin task that uh, you think I'll, I'll get around to doing that and a month has gone by. Imposter syndrome, the idea of not knowing something, choice paralysis, that tend to present. Uh, present as what's the best way of doing something, what's the best way of being a partner or a friend, running through different scenarios, or rejection, sensitive dysphoria, the idea of disappointing. If it's any of those particular threat triggers, often people will need to go from threat to the soothing cycle because they're such overwhelming triggers. So what that might look like is someone might think, okay, I'll get started on my, my I, I want to get started on my assignment that's triggered my threat system. So I'll go and soothe for 10 minutes and then start actioning the task. But in reality, what that might look like is you might get stuck in the soothing system for, say, six hours, and then the cycle of self-talk uh, might be that you're worried about that the assignment hasn't got completed um, chastising the self for not having done it and then the threat systems being re-triggered again and then getting stuck between the threat and soothing cycles um, and that's where the importance of self-talk and being self-compassionate uh, comes into play. Yeah I can really see that and as you were talking there I can I was sort of getting a glimpse into that process of how difficult that must be and you know getting getting almost like a feeling of being stuck and, and I certainly recognize how at first odd self-compassion can be if it hasn't been something that's, you know, you've ever experienced before, but actually how healing and powerful it can be. And I know Paul Gilbert and the CFT crew, they, uh, there's a lot of great exercises, things like soothing rhythm, breathing and stuff, and then kind of cultivating that compassionate image and 
you know, I, I was looking um, on your website and I saw that you integrate different areas such as acceptance, commitment therapy, and some other things. Is CFT something that you, you, you draw upon or not so much? Not so much. I, I do like to use the existing therapeutic modalities. So I find schema therapy really helpful for understanding subconscious urges. Uh, acceptance commitment therapy is such a neurodiverse friendly therapy. Um, I, I like to use the existing models, but what I like to do is put a neurodiverse lens upon those models. So when we're talking about schema therapy, we, we might be thinking about um, uh, as a child, say, for example, if someone was diagnosed as an adult with ADHD, we might talk about what that was like in terms of having uh, uh, unmet needs um, and continuously often people will have a, a failure-like trap, so they're continually told why are you not getting started on that? Um, given behavioural strategies that won't work, um, and eventually that'll form a failure life trap. So we're, I tend to use the existing therapeutic modalities, but it's putting that neurobiologically informed lens upon those modalities and thinking about how that might be different for someone who is neurodiverse. Yeah, got it. And so almost like tailoring it with what's there, but tailoring it from a neurodiverse perspective. Um, and it sounds like from your experience, things like acceptance, commitment therapy, or ACT, um, schema therapy, they, they lend themselves quite well to that. Uh, there's something in, in there that lends itself quite well. And um, I'm aware with ACT, I think my first introduction to it was, was a number of years ago, but it was via The Happiness Trap, the book by Russ Harris. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's he's based in Australia. Is that right? I, th I've, I have a feeling. I think he might be English originally, but I think he's based over in Australia. But um, yeah, really, really love that book, and it certainly opened my eyes to to a lot of that. You know, uh, just a slightly different feel, I guess. You know, that notion of acceptance and commitment again, similar to how compassion. If if they're if they're unfamiliar words, they can f maybe feel a bit jarring. But actually, looking, you know, the, the ACT model it's it's really got a compassionate underpinning for me you know it kind of models that you know be kind to yourself but how the suffering can continue if we're resisting it you know whether that's with any emotional difficulties mental health neurodiversity and do you find that 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 notion because it links into something i wanted to to ask and explore with you around this notion of of labels um and i've been reflecting on this quite a bit recently how Labels can be incredibly helpful for some, but maybe harmful for others. And I guess what I'm thinking there is for some, getting a diagnosis of ADHD, that can be incredibly validating and freeing and allow for compassion and responsibility and acceptance and commitment and just a real kind of, that makes so much sense. It, I understand that now and I can work towards kind of, you know, meeting my own needs and my values. They talk about values and act. Um, and just being really liberating. But then I wonder if there's a risk for others of there being like a chance of negating responsibility. And I guess by that, I mean, you know, perhaps saying, oh, I've got ADHD. I can't do that. Sorry. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that. I, I'm really, really interested to to get your thoughts on those kind of crossovers and labels. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. 
I think, um, say, for example, with the concept of diffusing from a thought, so cognitive diffusion is a, is a strategy under the acceptance commitment therapy umbrella. Um, I often differentiate with clients the difference between a top-down trigger of anxiety or a body-up trigger of anxiety. And often with neurodiverse clients, it's coming body-up. So um, uh, it might be the environment itself. For an autistic client, it might be that there's a, a sensory overwhelm and that's leading to cortisol in the body, and that might throw you into survival mode thinking, and you might, so you sort of want to move away from your thoughts if it's a body-up trigger because it's actually coming from the body-up that, that's sending you into survival mode thinking. So with uh, acceptance commitment therapy, um, absolutely it's diffusing from a thought and and accommodating for the actual trigger of the thought so that's where you bring an accommodation in place you um, might uh, the person might have headphones with them or they might just tell the person I'm autistic and I'm feeling really overwhelmed at the moment I'm going to take a sensory break I'll just go outside for a few minutes and come back in Mm -hmm. that's going to be far more effective strategy because you're actually targeting uh, where the uh, original cause is, it's, it's coming from uh, the nervous system. So you're um, making sure that the person feels regulated before you go and challenge the thoughts. So I think with acceptance commitment therapy, um, it is a top-down approach. However, it does allow you to move away from thoughts and challenge uh, and, and think, sorry, not challenge, think about accommodating with relation to the um, environment. Sure. So if we, uh, I wanted to come back to that notion of, of body up because that sounds really interesting and really linked in with this. To kind of explore that notion, you know, where I'm aware there can be crossovers with things like ADHD, and that's something I've been aware of kind of for some reason, it seems to be really in my awareness recently. Maybe there's more talk around it. I know we're in different countries at the moment, or just certain things that are that are coming up. But um, you know, there, there's certainly I've noticed crossovers with ADHD and addiction, for example, and that can be quite confusing to differentiate. Um, but going back to this sort of label notion, so it sounds like there, what I heard was almost how someone who wasn't neurodiverse, if they were struggling and just saying, "Hey, I, f I feel a bit sick. I just need to take a bit of a break." you know, that's, that's totally fine, rather than sort of sitting with it and feeling more and more unwell, and then it affecting themselves and everyone around them. It sounds like in that instance, kind of saying, hey, I just need to, I'm having a sensory overload, I need to take a break. That's a really, that's a really positive thing to do. And it can then enable that person to come back into the room, having regulated and go on about their day. But is, do you feel there's ever a risk, um, given the kind of multiplicity of of stuff out there and the crossovers that I've mentioned that it can be difficult. It feels like it's difficult to diagnose sometimes, I guess, you know, with these crossovers and, and stuff. And I don't know how you navigate that, but, you know, this notion that there can be tick box questionnaires and someone might score, say, like nine out of 10, but someone might score seven out of 10, but still be struggling in the same way. You know, how how do... I don't know. I guess you know, perhaps there's some confusion in, in me asking this. Um, One of the things that I think would be helpful for psychology as a discipline is uh, 
uh, and or not even just psychology systems in general, that there be uh, a, an accreditation for people who are neurobiologically informed and neuroaffirming. That way it gives the client the choice to ask the psychologist, I'm autistic, um, I just wanted to check in, uh, are you, have you done the training to practice from a neurobiologically informed approach? And similar to other accreditations that industries have and the psychologist can say no I'm not actually I am trauma informed but I'm not neurobiologically informed and that way that just helps people navigate uh, uh, if that's what they're looking for I think even in schools it would be good to have uh, training and, and parents could ask uh, have you had training in a neurobiologically informed approach and that way people can answer, um, no, that's not something I'm familiar with. Um, I, I feel like that would give the general public, if that's what they're looking for, that type of approach. Um, uh, in Australia, um, not all psychologists tend to, uh, let, often what they'll do is they'll refer clients on. So if they don't feel like they have the level of expertise, they'll say that's not my specialty. So often clients are seeing several psychologists at the same time. They might be seeing someone who's trauma-informed approach, another psychologist who's neurobiologically informed, and um, that way we can all play to our strengths and clients have the power to... Um, it's hard to be across all of it, and I, I, some psychologists are, but I think it... it um, it, it just helps the client navigate the system a little bit better. I, I think it would be um, uh, good to have some sort of um, accreditation or some sort of training uh, because the concepts are so new and the literature is so new that um, it would be good to see it a bit more formalised. Yeah, I totally hear that. I think that that sounds really wise, that notion. You know, certainly I recognise in, in psychotherapy it's a much more healing journey for the client when the therapist is is informed with the kind of subject matter and often you know does that would you say you know linking back to to yourself and i guess you know i'm thinking about things that are important in my story that i feel like you know tap into like lived experience but for you you know you, you identify as having autism um, I have I haven't uh, got a formal diagnosis of uh, I, I, I identify as having autistic traits. Um, I, I think because I live quite a neurodiverse friendly lifestyle that um, uh, I sort of haven't needed um, uh, accommodations such as funding and things like that. I have struggled though within systems. I, I didn't complete high school, so even though I scored incredibly highly across most of my subjects, um, there was no such thing as sensory breaks when I went to high school. There were no such things as accommodations. So um, I have actually never completed year 11 and year 12. I chose to leave high school and um, uh, uni was a lot easier for me because I can sort of teach myself and um, watch classes online. So yeah. I think pe people do tend to accommodate naturally. However, um, uh, I the reason I haven't gone and got a diagnosis is that I feel that um, 
if it got to a stage where um, I really do require um, uh, some uh, extra assistance, I'd absolutely uh, do that. Yeah, and that sounds like it must have been really hard, you know, at school and linking back to what you were saying about us needing more education and training, you know, not just in the sort of psychology and therapy world, but also at school and much younger to actually kind of to really hear what what kids are are saying and what they're going through and to to look for those cues and and to actually be more informed. Um, And I guess what I was uh, getting to was, you know, with this thing of lived experience at those autistic traits, do you feel that that puts you in a place where you understand more from where your clients are coming from? So rather than it being a kind of, you've read it in a book, it almost, you know, you, you have your own lived experience so you can really recognize you know, and connect with clients in a way that maybe someone without that might not be able to? I think what it's done for me personally is is, is made me uh, read uh, quite a lot um, to understand. Um, I, I never felt satisfied with thoughts, feelings and behaviours because I could feel that it's coming from my nervous system. So there's a concept uh, called neuroception and uh, neuro, uh, neurodiverse people have sensitive neuroception. So your fight or flight is constantly um, being triggered and, um, and it's quite a strong visceral feeling. So say, for example, if I'm hyper-focusing on something and um, someone moves closely or quickly towards me, um, I'll often... Uh, almost look frightened, like um, my neuroceptions kicked in and I can feel that visceral response and just uh, knowing that that's what it is, is that um, the that uh, it's a, my neuroception has kicked that fight or flight in, then you're much more in a position of power to know how to regulate, relate um, and go back to reasoning. So there's uh, three brain states you need to be regulated and related to people before you can access the reasoning part of your brain. Um, so uh, th- this is where that neurobiologically informed approach coming in is something like knowing what neuroception is or understanding we need to intervene at the level of the nervous system and understanding the different brain states you might enter is really crucial for a client who's neurodiverse. It's uh, it's quite a different approach to those top-down approaches like cognitive yeah. behaviour therapy. Definitely. Could you talk a bit more about what kind of techniques? So when you spoke about the body up and neuroception, which is really interesting and I think sounds so important because you know, I recognize from working from an integrative perspective, what I quite like about that is it's, it's meeting clients where they are, you know, what they need rather than having a kind of fixed agenda, which can sometimes be quite limiting. And it sounds like what I hear from you is that sense of, yeah, this top down stuff is really valuable, but actually in these instances, this, this body up stuff could be more valuable in that moment. Um, so, and can you talk a bit about some of the techniques that might be helpful or anything that you found helpful or how you would work with, you know, regulating from a body up perspective? So some of the body up triggers, um, one might be your baseline. So if a, a client is experiencing autistic burnout, 
their cup might be full. So it's kind of like walking around with a, a full cup and when someone puts a drip into it, um, it, it you might feel that um, it, it's almost like the symptoms are increased, that you might be more hypersensitive than you usually are. You might be more uh, uh, sort of less uh, flexible in thinking, more easy to reach overload. So um, baseline is really important as a body up trigger because if you know that you're coming from a baseline of autistic burnout, then you use spoon theory. You think, okay, I only have five spoons today. I've got five tomorrow. I probably use both of them, so I'm, I'm actually um, just going to work from home for the next two days. Um, I'm really going to limit my sensory input and weight until my nervous system, um, uh, until I'm feeling a little bit better, and then um, and then you can think about how you're uh, going to navigate your week around spoon therapy. Sorry, spoon theory. Another concept that people use is energy accounting. So thinking about what uh, is a withdrawal and, and what will help you. So that's one example is thinking about your baseline. Another example is uh, the environment itself. So often um, you might think about what's the closest car park before you might go somewhere, packing headphones with you, um, taking things like sensory breaks because you really want to catch it before it reaches that level. No good comes from a meltdown, so you really want to catch it early. Um, neurobiological needs is a big one for ADHD. So if you haven't had any protein or movement that day, you might feel the buildup of that in your body and then it's tuning into, um, okay, I I, I need to move, I need to go for a walk, I need to go and eat some protein, um, just listening to your body. Yeah. Those sorts of things um, have a huge impact um, and usually need to be addressed first before a top-down approach would be effective. Yeah, so as you were speaking there, it almost sounds like checking in, taking a pause and thinking, okay, wh what do I need? You know, I'm making up, for example, that say, if time time management is a real issue, um, often just turning up, you know, you mentioned a car park and I think you were talking about more from like autism and, and sort of taking a break, but I'm thinking of someone with ADHD maybe going to work and that car park's always busy, which can then impact on the timing. But actually maybe in those moments, is it taking a step back and thinking, okay, what's, what's the best time to leave? I need to give it a bit more thought, but this is going to give me more of a more capacity i guess you know i'm not that sort of links a bit to that spoon theory which is if i'm late and stressed that could be a spoon that's gone and then it's going to impact and i'm just that that stood out to me that notion of kind of just stepping back and pausing a bit like in kind of from a mindful approach i guess and a kind of soothing regulating place and has that been helpful for you do you find that something that you you utilize that kind of notion of body up and um checking in with your baseline and stuff like that very much so um uh, because the environment can be triggering there's definitely a lot more checking in and gauging uh where you're at how far you can push it and when an accommodation needs to happen mm. often with adhd if, if somebody wants to get somewhere on time um so the beauty of being a diverse thinker is that you um it's there's so much fun in going down rabbit holes and jumping from topic to topic and 
um, that is such a fun thing to do. But if uh, often what I'll tell a client is if you need to get to work, it might be better to the night before put your bag and your shoes at the front door. Um, only limit yourself to one room. So when you wake up, you just go straight to the bathroom, your clothes are already in there, get dressed, go to the front door, get your bag and then jump in the car. The reason for that is um, if you've got an important meeting or something to attend that you need to do it in that way is when you're a diverse thinker, if you wake up and you think, I'll just let myself go to one other room. I, I won't just get dressed in the bathroom. I'll just go make myself a coffee and then you'll turn the kettle on and you'll notice what's that thing over there on the calendar and, and you'll go to the calendar and start looking at that and then before you know it, you've gone into another room. And because of time blindness, half an hour might have gone by and you think, oh, my God, what just happened to that half an hour? I've jumped from uh, one room to the next and now I'm feeling late. So often I'll, uh, with ADHD, try to think about how can we get you from A to B without sort of uh, those distractions or um, mm. uh, jumping into those rabbit holes and then not realising how much time has passed. That sounds so valuable, Kerry. I really like that. And as you were speaking, I was just thinking it seems so important to put that in and how just those moments, you know, from a neurodiverse perspective can be really costly. You know, as you say, kind of, this is the plan, but I might just go and watch some TV and it'll only take this time. And, and you know, you mentioned time blindness and um, we've spoken a bit about crossovers and I'm aware there can be people who struggle with lateness, but who aren't ADHD, who don't have ADHD. Um, yeah. and, and that, that notion of almost, I had, I had a guest on actually, who's, who's researched a lot and she's, she came up with this notion of time bending, but was, was very sort of keen to differentiate it from ADHD, but hearing, hearing you both speak, it's like, I can see the crossovers, but it's, I guess this is, this is for me where it comes back to that kind of labeling. And it's like, for some, I can imagine that might be a lot more accessible. Like if they're working with someone like yourself and they're committed, they're saying like, hey, you know, this job's really important to me or this relationship's really important to me. I'm going to put my shoes by the door. I'm just going to go into one room. You know, it, I recognize I really want to go and make a coffee or I've just seen something that I really want to go and look at, but this is important. But how do you work with resistance and how can people with neurodiversity, you know, work with that resistance, which might be and this is going back to my question on labels, you know, maybe people who are saying, you know, I didn't choose to have ADHD. It, I've got, I've got no choice here because I can hear there is a choice, but I can imagine, you know, and I've certainly experienced that kind of notion of, you know, resistance is quite powerful. And sometimes it takes time and until, you know, we as individuals kind of come to that inner piece of, okay, I'm ready to do this now. Do you know what I'm saying? And and how do you yeah. work with that? You know, when, when resistance comes up, whether it's with clients, maybe you've had that yourself, or you know, your experience with that. So I like to differentiate between. Um, I, I often find with neurodiverse clients um, that a behavioural approach doesn't address the underlying feeling and need. So if we go back to the original uh, system we were talking about, the emotional regulation system, yes. say, for example, if someone's soothing um, and I need to get them across to the drive system or vice versa, drive to soothing, um, it's really important to do that uh, to meet the underlying need and not trigger someone's threat system. So I can give you an example of that. 
So I, I feel like people have a natural inclination to navigate the system. Myself, personally, I tend to go threat, drive, soothing. I find it really hard to soothe if I can still see that there's a lot of things that need doing. Mm. So um, when I get into that sort of overactive drive system, um, uh, words are a form of stimulation and, and um, it might not be effective if someone uses a behavioural approach of like, I think, I think you should self-care now, I think you should soothe. Um, that's not going to be effective. My partner's actually quite good at helping me into the soothing system, so he'll often put food, water and music in front of me and then I'll, um, uh, when I'm listening to music or having something to eat, my, my physiology calms down and then I'll naturally feel like soothing. Uh, my daughter and partner are the opposite to me. They go threat, soothing, drive. So um, they, they tend to like to soothe before they action things. They're both quite artistic um, and they're very passionate and do things quite well, but in order to do that, they tend to need to soothe. So if I wanted to help my daughter from soothing to drive, to say, for example, if she was gaming, uh, it wouldn't go down very well if I said to her, you need to turn that off now, there's all this stuff we need to do. Um, that would trigger her threat system and then she'd need to soothe again. So what, what I might say instead is um, something like what shiny are you hunting and she'll say I've caught three Pokemon and I'll say that's amazing, how did you do that? And then I'd say from there um, you're, you're working, my daughter's 11, I would say you're working harder than mummy, how about uh, we make the bunny rabbit some lunch, how about we give your little body a rest and have some lunch? And that way she's feeling proud of herself that uh, she has achieved something that's important to her um, and that helps her to move to drive without making her feel bad about the fact that she has sued. So I think the main thing is not triggering people's threat system. Yes. It's helping them uh, and not assuming that there's one way of uh, that people who are in the drive system, uh, that that's the correct way if people need to sue that's respecting that need and then thinking about how can we help them into drive without triggering their threat system. That's really nice. As you were speaking there, I, it almost reminded me of often in, in psychotherapy, you know, working from a relational perspective, almost and a bit like left left brain and right brain, you know, the left brain can be that part that is doing and it's really important, but how often in childhood that might not be met, like attachment-wise and all that stuff. And actually that right brain needs a lot of care and fostering. Otherwise, it's like a self-perpetuating cycle is what I make up. And when you, that was a great example you used with your daughter. It's like you could go down one route, but it's probably going to have the same effect. And it's a bit like that's not helpful, is it? And actually what is helpful? And Another thing, you know, coming back to that compassion and compassion-focused therapy, Paul Gilbert talks about having wisdom to respond. You know, compassion is there to kind of offer support, but then there's the ability to take kind of the responsibility needed through that kind of wise, wise voice rather than that maybe old shameful or more rule-based you've got to do it this way behavioral approach you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah and I, I really like that and i think it's so important because i mean there's we haven't got time to go into all of it but i'm even thinking from things like trauma it's a really fine line in some ways you know working with trauma 
is important to address, but there's a risk of re-traumatizing, which is then going to cause shutdown and, and activation. And so potentially there's got to be a balance somewhere. It's like, okay, what does this person need? That person might need this, but this person might benefit from more of a right brain attunement or compassionate responding, or just really kind of, you know, as you said, with those emotional systems, this person does it this way, I go this way. So I need a bit more of this. They need a bit more of this. Um, and there was actually a question I was going to ask, but we've sort of answered that really, which is, you know, how those, how can those in relationship with neurodiverse individuals support both the individual and themselves? And how can others better educate themselves on neurodiversity? And, and on that point, you know, we've spoken a bit about professionals getting accredited and doing more training for people who have children with neurodiversity, uh, partners, colleagues, how, how can we better educate ourselves on that stuff? In Australia, we're currently, um, uh, the government's been in discussions about, um, because there has often been a behavioural approach in schools, for example, and uh, there's been talks with Dr. Ross Green, who has developed the collaborative problem-solving model, and that's where you do employ concepts such as compassion, and, and it's at a deeper level. You're helping the child problem-solve of what's the underlying need here and how can we problem-solve together to get you to, uh, which will have a more... Um, you could get someone to behave in a certain way, but they're not really understanding why they need to behave that way. So I think um, there's a really lot of good work. Uh, there's a lot of good models out there that are quite neurodiverse friendly. So that's an example of a model that's being talked about in schools. Mm. Um, you can see I'm a diverse thinker because I've forgotten your original <laughs> question. Um, you were talking about... Um, supporting our family members is that the, the thing yeah how those in relationship with you know partners family members close friends can can better support them but also support themselves because i'm aware it you know it can it can be hard it, it can be it can be difficult not understanding something and it can activate you know our own stuff sometimes around i don't understand this and if you know perhaps if it's like someone who struggles with shame and they feel they've got it wrong you know addressing the person who is neurodiverse it could be a real you know you spoke about those emotional systems could be going haywire both people could be in threat at the same time but for different reasons and how can how can both support each other so i can hear there's a, almost a sense of someone with adhd or autism maybe being able to say this is what i need you know this would be really helpful if you could do this for me but how can the other person kind of look after themselves in that relationship or, you know, get support for themselves? I think it's really important uh, for neurodiverse clients but also their family members uh, to be connected to the autistic and ADHD communities. There's a lot of really fantastic uh, social media websites out there that um it, even sometimes someone just sharing an article and saying, I really resonate with this. Um, often the types of articles that clients share are coming from a lived experience perspective. Um, it's nice when psychological literature is tied in with that. I think that's really helpful to be research informed. But I think the main thing is uh, 
to remain curious and um, to listen to the autistic and ADHD communities because they've got such a wealth of information to share um, and they uh, that, that information is, is available at no expense. They'll go above and beyond. To, um, uh, we've just had an autism inquiry in Australia and the autistic community have done such an excellent job of coming up with recommendations um, so, yeah, I think uh, autistic-led and ADHD-led organisations are a really good place to start. Well, that sounds great. Um, before I let you go, I, I wanted to ask um, if you could talk about the functional legacy mindset and the five mind model, just for those who may not be aware, how you came up with that, uh, what, what it means in practice, and, yeah, just a bit more information on that. Uh, so in terms of the functional legacy mindset, uh, my therapeutic approach is to educate clients on how their minds function. Uh, I feel like if you're working with your mind and you're empowered um, and playing to your strengths, it's so much easier to navigate the world. And I love being neurodiverse. There's so much about it that I enjoy. Um, and uh, I think that when a client understands how their mind functions, that they have far better outcomes in therapy um, because they're working with the way they naturally function. Mm. Um, uh, in terms of the legacy, um, it's really important. The narratives we have about neurodiversity, there's a huge legacy in having diverse thinkers in the world and um, there's so much beauty in that, and if we can learn to accommodate, then um, that's that will be really helpful. Um, one of the main things that came out of the Autism Inquiry in Australia is that um, when clients are forced to mask, that, that's when they'll hit walls of autistic burnout, and if you push them beyond that, uh, the mental health uh, concerns are, are far worse than that. So. It's really going beyond um, uh, just thinking about the client and also advocating a little bit for how can we be more inclusive in, in society and, um, and uh, appreciating uh, the legacy that neurodiverse clients have. Mm. And uh, you know, what was your second part of the question? So the, oh, the five mind the model. five mind model yeah talk about that uh, so the the different types of uh, I've noticed a pattern with different types of minds so um, the ADHD mind I call the problem solving mind so one of the strengths of having ADHD is people are quite clever when it comes to variety and change and thinking outside of the box and being creative and innovative. Um, there's often uh, a term that's used called twice exceptional. So it's being gifted, but also having a genuine disability. If we can accommodate for people's disabilities, and uh, uh, often they're not huge accommodations. So in a workplace, um, I often chat with employers about how they can be more inclusive and, uh, and, and leverage on uh, some of the things that diversity are quite naturally good at. And the productivity is going to go up if you can accommodate for the things that people are getting stuck on. So one of the five minds that I uh, tend to focus a lot on is that problem-solving mind. 
the autistic mind is is another one uh, that I've focused quite heavily on. Yeah. Uh, the so it's really uh, each of the minds that I have focused on is is thinking about the the way the mind functions uh, when you're overwhelmed, how you're going to get stuck, what sort of strengths you have, and thinking about it from a holistic way of how do we uh, check in so that you're operating in a way that's authentic to you and uh, having that genuine connection with yourself and others and uh, the mental health uh, outcomes um, naturally are, are going to be better from there. Oh, it's really, really fascinating. Um sounds so interesting and so important as well you know really meeting it it sounds like a very compassionate validating and affirming approach that that you have there um and just really working with rather than working against you know kind of working with what is rather than trying to get rid of you know and i'm, I'm aware so much you know in life is that old carl young thing of resistance leads to persistence you know and actually just kind of you know, how can I be with this? What do I need? What do others need to know about what I need? Um, yeah, it's been so interesting talking to you, Kerry. I've, I've really valued it. It's been just fascinating, really, um, and just so informative. And there's so much there. Um, I mentioned Carl Jung and, and wanted to to see if you're up for doing some word association. I'm not sure if that's if you've come across that before or how that feels. No. Um, but so, um, I'm happy to give it a try. Yeah, so it's something I I do with all my guests, and it started off as something as thinking this could be quite cool. But I found each guest that kind of notion of we're all individuals, and words, whilst there can be a dictionary meaning of them, they mean such different things to different people, and it can be really interesting. And it was something that Carl Jung used to do. That's kind of where I first discovered it. You know, this word association test that he used to do to bring out the subconscious but perhaps we could do it for for a bit of fun and see what comes out okay great so i'll say i've got seven words here so i'll say a word and if you just say what comes comes up for you um yeah okay. no worries hopefully i don't um, give you an extra long explanation are you just wanting one word back yeah that's okay but was whatever comes up no no pressure or no rules um okay that's the aim of the game here we go flower Nature. Water. Relaxation. Child. Beauty. Mountain. Curiosity. Truth. I'm wanting to give you the longest explanation for this one. Um, uh, my line of thinking is around um, societal norms. Mm. Fear. Authenticity. And pride. Self-identity. How did you find that? Yeah, it was good. There's, there's the, uh, the side of me that wants to um, <laughs> go into detail and uh, be quite literal. But, um, yeah, it's quite freeing to uh, – I'm quite an intellectual person, so it's quite freeing to just think about how I feel. Yeah. I, I really recognize that can really how words can actually, you know, provoke or evoke like so much more. And I guess that's why it's such a cool thing. But actually I recognize this, you know, I, I certainly find that it's quite hard to just say one word because my mind is kind of going, I want to say so much more. And actually 
sometimes it's okay. And in a way, it, I wonder if this kind of fits in with what we were talking about, that notion of different types of minds, you know, with something like that, in a way, I could see how it could be quite activating, but actually it's got that saying one word, much like shoes by the door, bag by the door, one room, and just see where it goes. You know, if it doesn't work, try something else, but actually, you know, kind of gather your own data and just see, you know, what's going to help you. And, and it might be saying a one word answer to something, you know, being someone who overthinks and, or it might be actually that someone from the other flip side of the coin actually might go, I'd quite like to actually expand on that. <laughs> quite a nice saying? exercise. Absolutely. Oh, well, it's been a real pleasure and privilege speaking to you. Thanks for joining me. You're, you've been my second guest from uh, Australia. So it's really cool to connect, you know, so far away, but to be able, I feel like you're in the room with me. So it was really nice to connect with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to do that. Okay. Well, I hope to see you again soon. Wishing you all the best for the rest of your your day today. I know you're a number of hours ahead of us. I'm just starting my day and you're finishing yours, I think. But um, hope you have a peaceful rest of the day and twenty twenty rest of 2023. Thank you so, so much. It was so great connecting with you. See you. Take care. Bye. Thanks again to Kerry for coming on today. I felt like I learned so much from our chat. What really stayed with me was the importance of the body or bottom-up perspective she mentioned when it comes to neuroception. It makes total sense to me. I recognize if I'm in the threat system, often no amount of cognitive reasoning or left brain processing can get me out. And I've certainly found myself stuck in this process many times. I recognize the importance of soothing the sympathetic nervous system and calming the parasympathetic nervous system. I found things like soothing rhythm and soft belly breathing to be particularly helpful for this. Another thing that has stayed with me, which I guess links to this, is Kerry's notion of working with rather than against the mind and playing to our strengths and how important this is with neurodivergence. I can see how with this understanding, it becomes easier to explore and employ techniques such as those Kerry described. You'll have heard Kerry and I discussing a few different therapeutic approaches, including schema therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. There's a multitude of approaches available, and if you're interested in learning more, check out the BACP's A to Z of different types of therapy. I'll include a link to this, as well as Kerry's website and the article we discussed in the episode description. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioural Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell. You've been listening to the Journey Home podcast.